Let's turn together to Psalm 80 this morning. Last week we finished our sermon series in the book of Exodus. Uh, And this Sunday and next we're going to take two psalms which are written to reflect back on the story of the Exodus. And you might say, well, why did you jump from Exodus to the Psalms? Well, it is so that we can catch what Paul Harvey used to call the the rest of the story. And that is, these who were saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus, how did they finish the rest of their story? You and I, likewise, being saved by grace, how will we respond to the grace that we've been given. And so we'll pick up Psalm chapter 80, and as we turn there, I'll remind you that this is God's Word written. It's the only infallible rule for faith and practice. That is what we believe and how we would live. Psalm 80. To the choir master, according to Lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, You who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls, so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you've made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire, they've cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word It is the prayer of your people, our heart's desire that you would send forth your word through the ministry of your spirit, that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit says to your church. And I pray, God, again, that you would see fit to use a sinful, crooked stick like me to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus, who is here found in the scriptures. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Whether you like them or not, songs often have a a chorus. It's called a hook. And that hook is meant to make sure that you can sort of remember 
the meaning of the song. I was a sophomore in high school when the great theologian Vanilla Ice said, if there was a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Check out the hook while my DJ revolves it. Ice, ice, baby. Vanilla. Ice, ice, baby. (laughs) Then on the other end of the cultural spectrum, another great theologian, George Strait, I think I was in seventh grade, when he explained that all my exes live in Texas, and therefore I hang my hat in Tennessee. Sometimes hooks have have a double meaning, and that meaning might be funny. Again, I was in high school. When Garth Brooks sang about a woman who breaks up with him, she's of a higher class, but he's not worried about the breakup because he's got friends in low places. And then there's other hooks in other songs that are sort of meant to be sad, so that double meaning that goes along with it causes you to think. George Jones, who I once met at Morrison's Cafeteria in Nashville, sang about a man who stopped loving a woman but only when he died. He stopped loving her today. And I mention all of those songs, somewhat silly as they are, because a psalm is a song. And a psalm is meant to be sung by the people of God. And so like all of those songs that I mentioned, this one's more godly, this one's more noble, but Psalm 80 also has a hook. It has a a chorus that repeats itself. And also, like some of those songs I mentioned, the refrain that's here has a double meaning. And I'm going to explain the double meaning in just a minute. But first, I want to mention that the double meaning is, is here because it speaks directly to a mutual human condition that all of us can identify with. And that is that there are various times and various moments in our life when we face circumstances that we do not like. What do you do? You're a follower of Christ. Do you allow your heart to get bitter? Do you ask the Lord why? Do you simply pray that God would change your circumstances? Oh, I got a lot of silly choruses in my head. So do you. Here's a chorus worth remembering. And when you learn this chorus... And when you begin to cling to its meaning, you'll see that God cares more about your change of character than your change of circumstance. We're going to examine Psalm 80 under three simple points. A shepherd enthroned, a vine applied, a vine understood. Start with a shepherd enthroned. This is obviously a song, but it's also a prayer. And it addresses the Lord using two different images for God. One, God is a shepherd of his people, but he's also a planter, one who tends a vineyard. And so our points are reflected from those metaphors. You and I easily fall into a rut very often when we're praying to God so that we start to use the exact same language as we address him. We might say, dear Lord, or Father God, or Heavenly Father, or um, God. When you come to the Bible, the Bible uses different language. And it uses various metaphors that connect to the, to the very specific event of the moment. It's actually to our benefit to learn the vocabulary of the Bible. To learn how to speak to the Lord and address Him as His character offers. 
verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. Why does the term shepherd mean so much in the Bible? Well, the Bible, of course, is written into the context of people who spend most of their lives around pastures. Many of them are, are shepherds themselves. And the very first time that we, we see the Lord addressed as a shepherd, it's Genesis chapter 48. Jacob, towards the end of his life, calls upon the Lord in prayer. And he says, God, who has been my shepherd all my life until this day. And then in faith, he blesses his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And Jacob used that language because he knew from most of his life what it was like to tend sheep. And he could easily say, the Lord's been doing that with me. And so here it is, a shepherd. But this is no lowly shepherd. Verse 1 continues, you are enthroned upon the cherubim. Shine forth before Ephraim. Benjamin, Manasseh, stir up your might, come and save us. So this is a, a shepherd who is also enthroned upon the cherubim. The shepherd is a, is a king. And so you remember, of course, in our study, when we looked at the tabernacle, we saw the Ark of the Covenant. And we saw that there are cherubs on the top of the Ark. The, the, the lid which overlays it is called the mercy seat. And God instructed them to put his law inside the Ark of the Covenant so, so that the law meets his mercy. And God says, that's the place that I will come and dwell among my people. That's the place from which I will speak. But of course, that tabernacle is simply a picture of the heavenly throne. This glorious king who, who makes his throne among the angels. So you have all the tenderness of a shepherd. But you have the, the might and majesty and power of a king. That's what makes Yahweh the one to call upon in desperate moments. What in the world is going on in this psalm? Asaph cries out to God with a request. And it sounds so serious. Well, the tribes of Israel that are mentioned here are named in verse 2. That's actually how we get a clue for what's happening. Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh. These are the tribes that are descended from Jacob's favorite wife. Men, you should never say, this is my favorite wife. Jacob had a favorite wife and her name was Rachel. And ultimately, you remember, after the exodus, there's a 40-year journey to the promised land through the desert. God brings the Hebrew people to the land of Canaan. And through the leadership of Joshua, God gives the people the promised land. And they divide it up. And the tribes who are descended from Rachel begin to settle in the northern part of the kingdom. Under the reign of King Solomon and King David, the, the kingdom is united. Israel in the north... Judah in the south. But right after Solomon dies, the, the kingdoms divide again. So that both Israel and Judah are separate kingdoms. And in fact, the rest of the story means that they begin to tumble into apostasy. Both nations are unfaithful. Both nations fail to be what God intended them to be. But the fact is, Israel tumbled more quickly. So that they immediately corrupted their worship. In fact, their very first king repeats the sin of that golden calf that we studied in Exodus 32. But it's because of those sins 
It's because of a lifetime pattern of, of no repentance that God punishes them by sending forth the Assyrian army. So most scholars look at Psalm 80 and they say, this is a prayer that's being sung in Judah, in the southern kingdom. They're praying for their brothers of the northern kingdom. Even as the armies of Assyria begin to invade. It's a psalm that probably is written in the 8th century. Sometime before Assyria captures the northern kingdom. These details, of course, it's interesting. But for most of you sitting here, you go, well, that's centuries and and worlds away. So what do I do with a psalm like this? How does it minister to me? Well, friends, the chorus tells us the clues. Look at verse 3. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we might be saved. And then that chorus is repeated in verse 7, and it's repeated in verse 19. And so it is like those funny country songs because there's a double meaning. The phrase, restore us, which sounds at the surface like a simple request for God to fix the situation. God, things were better and now they're worse. Would you give us back what we lost? That phrase, restore us, can also be translated, turn us again. That seems very odd. Because even as the psalm begins with a cry of a shepherd who's enthroned in power, stir up your might, then the chorus says, turn us Convert our hearts again. You see, this is not a a prayer for the Lord to change what they face. It's a prayer that they would be changed personally. And that is the deeper, more pressing need. Think about all of the trials that you face, every circumstance or event that you would not have chosen for yourself. Well, here's a humble starting point for you and for me in every single trial. God, would you please use the pressures and the burdens of this event to turn my heart toward you? To be very clear, you can biblically pray for God to change your circumstances and he may do that. Charles Spurgeon makes the point that the best turn is not a turn of circumstance, but a turn of character. And that's what Psalm 80 teaches us. That God cares more about your change of character than your change of circumstances. And so while some of you are sitting in very painful and maybe confusing places before anything else, before you begin working in your anxious mind to try to think through all the possibilities of how you could fix it, before you begin to complain about it, before you try to make sense, it might be best to simply pray, Lord, turn me toward you through these circumstances. And then where have you heard the second part of the chorus? We hear it, let your face shine. 
You've been at Christ's prayers for a little while. Sometimes we use a benediction that comes from Numbers chapter 6. This is the blessing that God gave to Aaron to say to his people, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance toward you. God give you his peace. Because you see, friends, it's only in turning back to Him. It's only in a, in a heart of true repentance that we experience the, the light of God's favor, the joy of His face shining upon us. So on one hand, here's an application for everyone. Every trial is an opportunity for God to use this to turn my heart toward Him. Would you be willing to pray like that? But then on the other hand, every trial also presents an opportunity for a kind of honest self-examination, a repentance when the Holy Spirit points your sin out to you. And I want you to listen very carefully here because I would be very concerned if somebody heard something that I was not saying. Not every trial, not every heartbreak that you face is connected to your own personal sin. If you have cancer, it is not because you once told a lie. And yet there may be times in real life when there is a correlation between the consequences that you feel and the sins that you committed. It reminds us, of course, that self-examination That repentance is actually a a good whole life practice. It's one of the ways that God provides for you an exit ramp along the way to the path of destruction. And so in this text of Psalm 80, there's a correlation between sin and consequences. And the psalmist actually seems to know that there's a spiritual dimension to the circumstances. God seems angry with his people's prayers. Verse 4. Oh, Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? And then verses 5 and 6, he he employs poetic language. The people are, are made to eat and drink their tears, all while they're being taunted by their enemies. But then you look at verse 18. Verse 18 implies that they've been unfaithful and they know it. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. One scholar of the the Psalms says what makes this so bitter is that God saved Israel so that she would be faithful. And in her faithfulness, she would enjoy God's blessings. She'd have been the envy of the watching world. This was a nation that was meant to be light. She could have had moral purity. She could have had true, real justice. She could have had political stability. But the people are crying out now because nothing has turned out the way it was supposed to turn out. And they some at some deep level know it was my own fault. Where'd they go astray? How did they get to this point? That's the warning of the text. That's the warning for you and for me. They rarely, if ever, took stock of their sin in their own life. They rarely, if ever, made a practice of repentance. They rarely, if ever, turned to God when He convicted and showed them their sin. 
And even as they watched the consequences of their sinful choices, it was never enough for them to go, okay, that was a warning sign. I should repent. It was never enough to turn their hearts to the Lord until their entire world came crashing down. Here's what I've learned in 16 years of pastoral ministry. And I have learned it by watching others, but I've also learned it from my own stubborn heart. Tears of regret are always more bitter and fruitless than tears of steady repentance. So I wonder if there are not warning signs in your own life which should be a part of your own careful examination to turn you back and lead you to repentance. Where is the Lord providing these exit ramps in your life to get you out of dangerous places? What have we learned from the people of Israel? So that what if I encounter circumstances and issues that trouble me? Is it not an opportunity for me to go, Lord, should I turn back to you? And then secondly, could we learn from them and begin to use every trial as an opportunity for self-examination? When the Lord begins to show you patterns of sin in your life, are you the one that's quick to repent? One man I knew scurried around trying to gather lots of godly advice from all the people that he could think of. When his life finally crumbled and fell, it became obvious He never actually heeded any of the advice. He was just looking for people to agree with him. Another man in my office crying over an unchecked pornography problem on his way to his fifth case of adultery. Parents who are confused. I don't know why my children are acting out. I don't know why their behavior is like it is. But yet they were never willing to provide consistent, loving discipline or dads who are confused I don't know why the boys talk to their mother that way but it's because dad's been talking to their mother that way for years or mothers who belittle their children and then they wonder I don't know why he or she has such a low self esteem these are just examples all of us have warning signs in our lives in the case of Israel it was almost too far gone like it was going to take a shepherd enthroned to save them but they're going to need a heart change first verse 7 turn us again O God of hosts let it let your face shine that we may be saved you see God cares more about your change of character than your change of circumstances a shepherd enthroned my second and third point are not nearly so long We want to move to a vine applied. If you look at the text, verses 8 through 11, this metaphor changes. It's no longer a shepherd. Here, God is a planter who sent forth a vine. And it says Israel is that vine. And God, who brought her in seed form out of Egypt, took them to the promised land. He cleared their enemies out of the land and he planted them. And she took root. And under God's care, Israel grew like a mighty vine. In fact, in her strength, she reaches to the Mediterranean on the west. She reaches to the Euphrates River on the east. And it's such a a powerful image. 
It's what God was doing when he built the nation of Israel. And the borders that were promised were always meant to touch the Gentile nations. They were always meant to provide shade to the watching world. Verse 14. Why then have you broken down its walls? In one sense we could answer, surely we've already got the conclusion, don't we? The nation of Israel fell into idolatry. She sinned against the Lord because she wouldn't, for, for, she wouldn't repent. Therefore, she forfeited what she was meant to be. But then again, why did the Lord allow this to happen? The psalmist says, you have broken down its walls. And the language is so full of shame and it's so vivid from what she was to what the world now sees that she is. They stroll by, they pick off the fruit of this dying vine, even as a wild boar runs through and just ravages it. But in that question, why? You can tell that the psalmist believes in a sovereign God. He believes in an infinite knowledge in God. He believes in a God who is infinite in power. He believes in a God who's wiser than us. And so in that way, he speaks the way you would speak if somebody was asking you about the character of God. So then, why? I mean, this is the vine that God planted. Why would he? Why did he invest so much in planting if only he was going to leave it ravaged to the world? I've been reading J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God Again, for the first time in a long time. I hadn't read it in a number of years. I've forgotten how good it is. Chapter 10 is on God's wisdom and ours. In other words, how do we as Christians interact and live in response to an all-wise God? And this is what Packer says. He says, most of us think that knowing the wisdom of God will mean we grow in understanding his ways. Why he does what he does. And he says that 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 delusion leads us to a false understanding. So that when we confront a circumstance that is painful or inexplicable, we're left shattered. Judah and Israel are asking this question. Maybe some of you today are asking the question, why? And you could say, well, surely my sins deserve no better. But God, is there more? And Packer says, well, the truth is that God in his wisdom to make and keep us humble to teach us to walk by faith has hidden almost everything that we would like to know about his providential purposes that he is working out both in his kingdom but also in our lives so we have an application from a vine that's dying number one I'm not going to be brought into the secret counsel of God's knowledge but number two His plan is so much more vast than I could possibly understand that if he was to reveal to me just the part I would like to know about, it wouldn't make any sense in the context of his vast wisdom. Packer says, God is teaching you and me to confess that he's wise. 
to learn to cleave to him, to live our lives in him, to trust him. And the fact that I don't know what he's doing, that I don't understand, that's actually the path toward what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. That's actually the pathway to the beginning of wisdom to make us more humble, more joyful, more godly, more resolute in doing his will and yet far less troubled, far less bewildered. The Lord is wise and I'm not. After the Exodus, the Lord planted the nation of Israel and long after the nation of Israel crumbled and fell, the Lord was still teaching a message of humility and faith because God cares so much more about your change of character than your change of circumstances. We've got a shepherd enthroned. We've got a vine applied. And finally, this vine understood. Look at verse 14 with me again. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted For the son whom you've made strong for yourself. They've burned it with fire. They've cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand. The son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. And so in the midst of calamity, friends, that's actually a prayer of faith. Bad circumstances, whatever they are, do not spell the end of the story. Derek Kidner, who's one of my favorite Old Testament commentators, he says the Lord is not one to begin a great work and somewhere along the way to lose interest. Isn't that what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6? He who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. You see, ultimately what God does is he answers the why question with a who answer that no one saw coming. They're reading this in light of Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. Do you remember it? No. That's where the Lord said, Israel is my son. And I've called my son out of Egypt. So the psalmist sings about the man of God's right hand, the son of man who you've made strong for himself. And he thinks he's praying for the revival of the nation of Israel or for the king who sits on the throne in Israel. And John Calvin says so beautifully, God answers our prayers not as we pray them, but as we would pray them if we were wiser. So with all the fervent urgency of a pleading that this nation would not die, we ask the question again, why did God cause Israel to fall in her own unfaithfulness, even while people were crying out to the Lord for her deliverance? The answer? Because Israel was never, as a nation, meant to be the vessel of salvation for the whole world. Israel as an unfaithful son was meant to foreshadow a true faithful son. Israel as a vine cut down was meant to foreshadow a true fruit-bearing vine cut down. Which is why Jesus, as he walks towards the cross and faces death, he turns to his disciples and he makes sure they know, I am the vine, you are the branches Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. But let's be very clear, apart from me, you can do nothing. 
the psalmist who prays verse 18. Let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. He could not possibly have known how the Lord would answer the fullness of that prayer. Even as he cries out, God, what are you doing? He did not know God's wisdom. That a faithful son, a fruit-bearing vine named Jesus, cut down in the prime of his obedience, cut down in the prime of his life, could answer the heartfelt longing, which is so beautifully spoken of in verse 18. Look at it. Then we will not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Oh, let's be very clear. God did place his hand on the man of his right hand. But it was his only begotten son who had been sitting at the right hand of the father from all eternity past. And he made that son strong for salvation through weakness and suffering and through death. And he caused that vine to be chopped down so that the branches, you and I, would begin to bear fruit so that we would never turn back from the Lord ever again. And in him, God gives life to the people who call upon the name Jesus, which is exactly what the psalmist was praying for. And then the song ends with a hook with a chorus, which is applied to the future of the church, which is applied to the future of God's people in everyday life. It's a future look that you and I would keep bearing fruit. How will you live from here forward? Turn us again daily, Lord. Let your face shine again daily so that we would be saved eternally. God cares more about your change of character than your change of circumstance. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It is so rich, so full. We thank you for placing the hand, your hand on your son Jesus Christ and providing salvation through him. We pray that you would nourish us on your word, cause it to land in our hearts, and receive the remainder of our worship in Jesus' name. Amen.